The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Therapeutic Advances in the Early Treatment of Alzheimer's Disease, Expert Insights on Novel Biomarkers and Emerging Disease-Modifying Therapies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash YFY860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, I'm Dave Weidman from Banner Alzheimer's Institute in the University of Arizona in Phoenix. Welcome to this educational activity, which is today focusing on therapeutic advances in early Alzheimer's, including recent progress in the development of novel biomarkers and disease-modifying therapies. Joining me in today's discussion is Dr. Danielle Goldfarb, my esteemed colleague from across uh, the Phoenix metro area at Bannerson Health Research Institute and the University of Arizona. Welcome, Dr. Goldfarb. Thank you, Dr. Weidman. It's great to be here. So uh, I'd like to start by stating that the advances in Alzheimer's disease biomarkers have led to uh, really made the field of Alzheimer's explode during the past decade. But these biomarkers really uh, haven't been applied yet uh, to any uh, very practical or broad degree in clinical settings. Uh, Despite many well-recognized benefits of identifying uh, early and diagnosing early Alzheimer's disease uh, in an early symptomatic phase called mild cognitive impairment, uh, it uh, often in the community isn't diagnosed until uh, persons have reached a stage of dementia for which our disease-modifying therapies, at least at this juncture, wouldn't be expected to slow down cognitive decline. And uh, we now are seeing, especially with the approval of a drug already, uh, an anti-amyloid antibody, that uh, disease-modifying therapies have the uh, potential to be most effective when they're used early, in early stages, uh, otherwise known as prodromal Alzheimer's. Uh, So we think it's very important that neurologists and other healthcare professionals who care for uh, uh, folks who are at higher risk, which is uh, mainly age, uh, older individuals uh, at risk for Alzheimer's, uh, and so it's important that we diagnose uh, as early as we can. And we do think that eventually uh, biomarker testing in the community uh, will uh, lead to earlier diagnosis and increase the likelihood that patients will benefit from these disease-modifying therapies. So let's begin with uh, Dr. Goldfarb, uh, and uh, she will present a a case. As clinicians, we always like to make this very Uh, real world. So we have a patient here named Stella. She's 62 years old, right-handed female, 18 years of education. So she's had some memory complaints for about six months, um, trouble finding words, misplacing things, also some mood changes with some mild anxiety and some maybe some apathy. Her spouse has also noticed she's having trouble with recent conversations and events over maybe the past two years, um, but definitely worse over the last three months. Uh, and so her medical history just has hypertension controlled on lisinopril. She had a myocardial infarction a decade ago and uh, no family history of dementia though. So in clinic, she had a uh, mini mental state exam of a score of 25. So she lost three points, three out of three on recall. And then she lost two points on orientation for time. And then some other testing that was done. She had some mood questionnaires that showed mild depression and anxiety um, and some lab testing for uh, reversible causes of cognitive impairment. Everything came up looking okay. She had an MRI of her brain without contrast that showed mild to moderate bilateral parietal atrophy, a little bit of bifrontal atrophy, and also mild bihippocampal atrophy. 
in terms of subcortical white matter changes, there was a mild to moderate degree. And so for Stella, her neurologist was considering uh, Alzheimer's biomarker testing. Now there's been quite a significant amount of advances in a variety of biomarkers over the last 15 years. Um, so the majority of biomarkers are still used in predominantly in research, um, but we do have more uh, coming online available for clinical uh, and for also even point of care testing. So many of you may be familiar with this first chart here, uh, which shows the hypothetical uh, change in biomarkers over time for Alzheimer's disease. And uh, importantly to consider the uh, type of biomarker, what it's looking for. So here we have predominantly amyloid beta, tau, and neurodegeneration, um, as well as finally the last slope here is for the actual clinical change. And on the right uh, side we see another table with the most well-validated um, biomarkers in a, in we're looking at these in a schema called ATN um, or amyloid tau and neurodegeneration. So this is a framework that was originally created um, to try to categorize individuals as having any of these three components um, as positive or negative and in therefore being able to identify is someone on the Alzheimer's trajectory or not and where are they and what might we do at that point. So we'll get more into detail on these different biomarkers, and you can see these are broken down into CSF, blood, and imaging. So Dr. Goldfarb, uh, as we can see in this table, there are several well-validated biomarkers, and I was very impressed by the previous slide with the different trajectories because uh, it brings to light the fact that if the amyloid can start 10 or 20 years before, and then the tau even before symptoms, uh, if we can use biomarkers, an ounce of prevention being worth a pound of cure, then we may change the behavior of, of clinicians and even, say, community neurologists to think about uh, diagnosing earlier uh, before uh, some of these anti-amyloid and uh, potentially anti-tau treatments uh, would be effect will be effective. And um, what do you think uh, is the best practical uh, way of approaching these different uh, validated biomarkers in the clinic? Right, so currently, Clinically, um, CSF uh, is covered, uh, reimbursed by Medicare and by other insurance companies, looking for the Alzheimer's panel, so that's the A-beta uh, and the tau, total tau and uh, phosphorylated tau. And so that's for an indication of Alzheimer's disease versus frontotemporal dementia. And so um, otherwise, uh, things uh, these in this table aren't yet online, but we really do expect that. Um, so the amyloid PET scan we know has gone through the ideas and new ideas, uh, Medicare uh, studies and have shown to change management. And so hopefully these will be an, another tool and these are really important because there are in fact, you know, many people who can't have lumbar punctures um, in this setting. And so you can see that these are really highly sensitive and specific. And specific. You and I both, Dr. Weidman, are clinicians, and so we have to uh, be realistic about what's available. But uh, truly, once plasma biomarkers are online, we are going to be using those extensively. And so I just want to put in a plug for all of, of you uh, practicing doctors that this is, this is going to be happening soon, and we need to consider this for our patients to get early diagnosis. Well, the first paper was published on the, the amyloid PET scan about 15 years ago, and amyloid PET has increasingly become a mainstay in Alzheimer's research. And truly, um, 
has shown us that prior to the amyloid PET being available, we were in fact enrolling um, maybe almost 20% of participants into the Alzheimer's treatment trials did not even have elevated amyloid. And so that it's, it's understandable why some of these trials failed and weren't successful because a good portion of these people did not even have the Alzheimer's changes. So this has really been a game changer. Um, and uh, as well, we can now detect with this disease in the preclinical stages. And so clinically, when I uh, have used this with the ideas or the new ideas study, the Medicare program in clinic, when I have a negative scan in someone who really looks like Alzheimer's disease, then well, not only is it meaningful to the person and family that, okay, so this is an Alzheimer's mimic. And so perhaps it's one of these, you know, limbic predominant etiologies like a TDP43. And, um, and then when it's positive, it's, it's uh, of course, really important too to help really um, accurately um, and precisely manage what's going on and then uh, helpful to direct people to clinical trials who are interested. So the tau PET scan, um, has really uh, been proven to be valuable in, in aging studies and naturalistic studies and as a predictor of future cognitive decline and in therapeutic trials um, as a surrogate outcome measure. So they're all amyloid positive, but we have cognitively normal. And then the middle group is those who are amyloid positive with mild cognitive impairment. And you can see in their tau PET scan that, uh, that elevated tau, the blue there is much more prominent than in the um, cognitively normal individuals. And then this progresses um, as they uh, go into the dementia stage of Alzheimer's disease, you can see the, the tau burden is, is present, and the, uh, it, more so, excuse me, and more widespread. And so the first FDA-approved tracer for um, tau, PET, was in 2020. So if we switch from PET scans to CSF, which uh, we do have a lot of research, a lot of data, um, especially from population studies and cohort studies, uh, looking at CSF, and we have some really uh, well-validated biomarkers, and those would be total tau, A-beta-42, and phosphorylated tau. And a recent um, analysis did show that total tau uh, to A-beta-42 ratio and phosphorylated tau to A-beta-42 ratio was actually uh, had a more robust agreement with um, identifying Alzheimer's individuals than did any one of these CSF markers individually. Now, if you're a practicing clinician, um, seeing individuals with cognitive impairment, you might want to ask, uh, is this person, can I order uh, or look at CSF biomarkers? When should I do this? Who's, who is this indicated for? So um, any uh, person with mild cognitive impairment that's suggestive of a neurodegenerative disease uh, possible or probable Alzheimer's disease. And uh, individuals who are early onset, so under 65 years old, as well as those that have some atypical features, such as perhaps there's a behavioral um, predominant syndrome, and you're really considering could this be Alzheimer's disease versus frontotemporal dementia. And so uh, in, in 2018, a, a group of experts convened and put out um, a appropriate use guidelines for when to when to use these CSF biomarkers clinically. So that would be um, good to check out if you're interested. And uh, of note, just recently, a the first in vitro diagnostic test um, point of care to diagnose or to to detect Alzheimer's disease was approved by the FDA. So this is a uh, can identify A beta 42 over 40 and has a rapid turnover. 
So that is exciting that we are making these, these strides. Well, we'll move on a little bit to plasma biomarkers. Uh, and uh, of course, that's very exciting and new. Uh, Dr. Goldfarb, are these available for use in the clinic uh, to confirm Alzheimer's at this juncture, or are they uh, still uh, simply research tools? Uh, and uh, uh, how accurate are they? So they're they're not available in terms they're not reimbursed yet. So, um, but there are some amyloid uh, plasma biomarkers that can be can be ordered. Are you using them, Dr. Weidman? Well, the one that's CLIA certified and uh, approved uh, plasma amyloid, I have not used, but I do think that uh, it will be used by me when I uh, think that uh, instead of amyloid PET, I'd want to check for the state of Alzheimer's uh, in someone who uh, may be uh, living too far from a research site so they can't participate, don't have proximity to a clinical trial where I can check the biomarkers. I also think that uh, it's going to be a great avenue to generate um, uh, more diagnoses and more interest then in research and interventions in the in diverse uh, populations. Uh, but we also need experience, I think, uh, with this test being available to anyone who wants uh, to pay for it, in how to counsel and interpret the results. So we're not there yet uh, to just recommend this for any physician just to check for amyloid willy-nilly. And as um, effective disease-modifying treatments come online, this will absolutely um, become, you know, be used uh, in a mainstream way and, and hopefully by primary care providers, although like you said, we will need, we will need guidance uh, and guidelines for how to counsel people on these results. Agreed. So I'm going to shift now to plasma PTEL 181, uh, which is really, is really one that is going to change the game here um, to be able to uh, easily and non-invasively diagnose Alzheimer's disease and early, even in these, these preclinical stages. Um, so uh, these are studies that use these ultra-sensitive immunoassays to identify um, PTAU-181. Um, and you can see that they looked at, uh, so let's start on the right side, um, looking at individuals who are amyloid, first amyloid beta negative, cognitively unimpaired older adults, and then um, amyloid beta negative MCI, and next is amyloid beta positive, cognitively unimpaired, and then amyloid beta positive MCI, and then amyloid beta. In the middle there you see uh, dementia, so there's this sequential increase um, with the increased um, cognitive impairment, and then in these other diseases, uh, a nice comparison that there was not an elevation. And then in this other cohort, you can see that similarly, uh, this was elevated in MCI and Alzheimer's disease dementia, but not in these other diseases. Um, so what's, what's also really uh, important about PTAU is that um, it, it appears that PTAU-181 represents a neuronal response to amyloid beta aggregation. And so uh, what so PTAU-181 actually is consistent with both tau-PET and amyloid-PET um, results, So, which means that if a person has elevated PTAU in their pl you know, plasma PTAU, that would 
we could extrapolate. They, they likely would have, if they had tau pet and amyloid pet, those would be abnormal and elevated too. And so this is really going to make this uh, diagnosis and early treatment and referral to clinical trial actually feasible. And this is already being used to enrich clinical trials and to pre-screen individuals, which is so important um, because our studies can be long and um, we have to screen a lot of people. So then more recently, plasma P-tau 217 uh, has been identified and that uh, appears to be even, uh, show an even stronger relationship to Alzheimer's disease with um, an increase in those who have Alzheimer's dementia by seven, almost eight times higher than controls, and then in those with MCI about one and a half times. Um, and so you can see also in comparison to other dis neurodegenerative diseases in vascular dementia, um, we're not seeing an elevation in PTAU 217. Um, and then we can see the area under the area under the curve here um, is is quite um, high as well. So this is a a really uh, important finding in addition to 181. And then more recently, now we have uh, PTAU 231. Um, and so still, this is much newer, and so this is also looking um, like promising an increase in Alzheimer's disease dementia and MCI, as well as cognitively normal um, individuals who have positive amyloid. And so very high performance to identify Alzheimer's disease neuropathology. So it sounds like plasma, PTAU, 217, and 231 are all effective at detecting Alzheimer's disease neuropathology. Um, and in the event that all, these, all of these biomarkers are validated and approved, uh, how would you select one over the other one, Dr. Weidman? Well, I'd first preface by saying if all three get approved and uh, insurance covered them, that would be an embarrassment of riches as a clinician. And among these three, and they've even been compared, and there's some literature to support that PTAU 217 seems to perform the best. It's most tightly uh, predictive uh, and matching uh, up with uh, amyloid positivity or elevated amyloid and uh, in symptomatic folks, then uh, tau pet would be expected to show uh, findings consistent with Alzheimer's disease. I would state that maybe PTAU 231, which seems to elevate first, may be uh, a good screening tool for uh, once we get uh, into uh, population screening for secondary prevention, similar to a lipid panel. Uh, but I would be happy with really any of these in the symptomatic uh, phase uh, and, and, and enhancing patient care. So. We have now also markers of plasma markers of neurodegeneration that are uh, sensitive. And so we have neurofilament light, which was first identified uh, in CSF. This is a well-established marker for neurodegeneration um, and is not, not specific to Alzheimer's disease. Um, but the, we can see this, uh, these studies that showed, uh, looked at different um, cross-sectional cohorts identified that plasma NFL was elevated um, in not only Alzheimer's disease, but you can see on the, on the left, frontotemporal dementia, uh, ALS, and uh, vascular dementia, but not in depression. And so that's a really important finding that we see, can see here on the right, uh, is that the, the, those individuals that had a primary psychiatric late onset um, disorder, uh, which included depression and also other psychiatric 
frequently presenting symptoms like psychosis, um, did not have elevated neurofilament light, and so therefore this wasn't caused by neurodegenerative disease. So this could be a really um, important way to uh, quickly uh, you know, determine that. And a lot of times individuals with psychiatric, uh, late onset psychiatric symptoms end up never getting diagnosed, even though it's caused by neurodegenerative disease. Um, they may have a behavioral variant AD or frontotemporal dementia, and so this would be a great way that, you know, a psychiatrist, for example, could quickly determine that. So it's always good as a clinician to think about what's a treat, what might be a treatment algorithm in the future and, or a diagnostic algorithm, and how would we use the biomarkers, uh, the plasma blood-based biomarkers that we've talked about already. Um, and so this is just a dis potential decision tree that we might use. And so uh, suppose we have an individual with some cognitive impairment who you're seeing in clinic, um, whether you're a primary care doctor or a neurologist or geriatric psychiatrist. And so you could start with the plasma P-tau. They're older, they have a positive plasma P-tau, uh, 217. So we really suspect that all, they have Alzheimer's disease. And so like we said before, they probably have, would, if they went on to have amyloid PET and tau PET, those would be positive and so they could quickly get into treatment. But say this person has cognitive impairment and their P-tau is negative. So then we could check the plasma neurofilament light. And if that one was positive with a negative P-tau, then we might say, okay, they, have, they could have another neurodegenerative disease or they could have vascular dementia. And we, so we could go that pathway. And, or if they had a late onset psychiatric disorder, uh, like we just mentioned, we could do plasma P-tau. Um, and if that was negative and um, if they had negative NFL, then we'd know that this isn't neurodegenerative. So there's uh, a lot of exciting um, possibilities with this, but of course we, uh, we will need treatments and care to support all of these things once we're diagnosing these more. So back to Stella, our case of uh, amnestic mild cognitive impairment, uh, an amyloid PET scan uh, was uh, able to be done and it was elevated, particularly one can see here in red in the frontal lobes, and now management uh, with a firmer or more uh, firmer diagnosis, uh, doesn't so much change, but really expands. Uh, families and uh, the patient uh, can now be informed of the diagnosis and feel proactive about uh, non-pharmacologic strategies, uh, checking with uh, counselors to uh, understand how to plan ahead, how to fill out disability paperwork, uh, appropriate diet, appropriate exercise, uh, and now discuss the potential benefits of a disease-modifying therapy, especially uh, as they become increasingly available. Or uh, one, very often families are, and patients are more excited about participating in a trial when they see they have the elevated amyloid. They really want to do something about it. And this wheel is designed to show that there's three types of treatments for Alzheimer's. Disease-modifying biologics, which are biologic monoclonal antibodies, could be against amyloid, could be against tau. There's also disease-modifying small molecules, and then there are uh, symptom-reducing small molecules, uh, which we would uh, add in, uh, say, to denepazil or cholinesterase inhibitor, and hopefully enhance cognition, improve quality of life, even if we don't modify the disease. I want to make sure that you understand that uh, some of this information will be available uh, in a uh, 
tool format, a practical aid, uh, going through these different monoclonal antibodies that are now in phase three clinical trials. Aducanumab has been approved, but there is uh, a study called Embark, which is 3P, open label, which is designed to uh, see whether or not uh, longer use in those who had participated in the pivotal trials is safe and effective. And uh, it's also important to note that baseline Embark data uh, still had here reduced uh, amyloid burden even after that treatment gap between the end of the placebo-controlled studies and the beginning of the open-label Embark study. And there's even a trend uh, that the high dose in the placebo-controlled here in blue, uh, even after the variable gap period, has a difference uh, in the uh, amount of cognitive decline. And it's important uh, for us to understand there is an increased risk of edema that might develop as we mobilize the amyloid and even some microhemorrhages. Uh, and this is greatly associated with uh, APOE4 haplotype or carrier status. It is usually asymptomatic. Uh, we have the most information uh, on this from phase three from aducanumab because that has been published, whereas the phase three other trials are still to be read out. So we don't exactly know in larger numbers what the uh, rate is of ARIA in the other, uh, uh, for the other agents. But uh, in, uh, for aducanumab, there's an overall rate of 35% for the uh, amyloid-related imaging abnormality edema at the therapeutic dose. Uh, and uh, as you can see, are higher in those who carry the E4 uh, allele or haplotype. Uh, most of these people are asymptomatic, but it uh, means that uh, there will be a need for very close uh, MRI <coughs> follow-up as the doses are being increased up to this therapeutic dose uh, at the, uh, during the first six to 12 months of use. Here's just a, a graphic representation of what ARIA-E looks like in different cases. For instance, if it's this mild and the patient doesn't have symptoms, you could even dose through that. Here, if it's large, and this would be called moderate to severe, then you would suspend the dose. Here's an example of ARIA-H, standing for hemorrhage. These are small microbleeds which may develop here and here, and uh, those tend not to be uh, symptomatic. Uh, uh, in, in, very few are symptomatic compared to REE. Now I'd like to discuss denanumab in early Alzheimer's disease, uh, also known as the Trailblazer uh, trial. It was the first uh, phase two trial to show uh, a disease-modifying effect with a significant trend towards benefit and slowing down cognitive decline. Denanumab was also uh, unique in that it was the first trial uh, to enroll patients based on the extent of the tau pathology, such that uh, patients with no or very low tau here, who may even be amyloid positive but yet have symptoms, were excluded uh, and, uh, because they either would not really uh, be deemed to have any natural progression during the feasible f duration of a trial or perhaps even the symptoms would not be considered due to Alzheimer's disease uh, without sufficient tau burden. And uh, the folks uh, with high tau were excluded because they uh, perhaps would be viewed as too advanced to be slowed down by anti-amyloid therapy. The primary outcome was a combination of a functional and cognitive scale 
and then there's clearly a trend towards a slowing down of cognitive decline throughout these 76 weeks. Similar trends were seen in other secondary outcomes. This is another combination of a cognition and uh, function. Uh, clearly very strongly removed amyloid, in fact, so much so that there were 25% uh, of people after six months and 50% of people uh, who received drug after 12 months had enough amyloid cleared to be uh, quote-unquote amyloid PET negative or in the normal range such that they did not even need uh, uh, further donanumab over the 78-week trial and were switched to placebo uh, in a masked fashion. Uh, the AAN meetings uh, have reported and confirmed that both uh, plasma to uh, phosphorylated tau 217 and uh, glial fibrillary acidic proteins uh, show a, a decrease in response to donanumab. Uh, and uh, the new fact here is that uh, this is a sustained uh, lowering both in the uh, donanumab group that uh, continued after 24 weeks and the donanumab group, as I had mentioned, who after half a year had sufficient amount of amyloid to be removed. So uh, an implication of this is that there was a prolonged effect of lowering amyloid, and there was also uh, not seen here uh, a sustained reduction in the amyloid burden. It clearly seems to affect uh, soluble forms of phosphorylated tau. The Trailblazer II study design, and don't be confused, the Trailblazer II is the phase three study, uh, is enro uh, enrolling a much larger uh, number of patients. It has stopped enrolling. The difference between this study and the phase two is now that the uh, patients with high tau burden by PET scan would uh, be allowed to receive treatment, uh, even though the primary objective and outcome is to see whether there's slowing down of cognitive decline in the intermediate group as in the phase two. There'll be a sub-analysis of those who have high tau burden to see if uh, there's clinical efficacy there as well. Low tau burden patients uh, are continuing to be excluded, and again, uh, the main reason for that is feasibility, that they would not be ex expected to be uh, to progress a placebo or a drug within the feasible duration of these uh, trials, which are very expensive. Uh, Trailblazer 4 is a head-to-head -head study comparing donanumab to aducanumab, really to see whether or not this effect that I described with donanumab removing very quickly over 6 to 12 months is unique, or is uh, this the case with aducanumab as well? So there'll be a direct comparison. So Dr. Weidman, what do you think the implications of this head-to-head this -to -head study will be depending on the results? I think this could be uh, a landmark study in the sense that uh, should donanumab uh, be unique in this way, then uh, we could consider if it is proven to be clinically effective, uh, shows efficacy in slowing down cognitive decline and say as prescribable as aducanumab is, then we would have a sense of uh, a more limited duration of therapy. Right now with aducanumab, uh, there is no uh, stopping point that we know of. There's not enough evidence to know when to stop administering. So at this point, it could be potentially indefinite. And certainly that leads to uh, important cost considerations when there's concern about bankrupting Medicare with these treatments, so that's really crucial. Yes, great, great point, Dr. Goldfarb. Gantinarumarib, based on some previous studies which did not meet uh, uh, primary uh, efficacy endpoints clinically, uh, still removed amyloid in a very potent way, 
slowly and gradually over three years. These uh, studies, while they were uh, failures of phase three, uh, still were at, uh, showed subgroups of persons that who had received the highest dose were now showing some trend towards uh, slowing of cognitive decline, such that there are now ongoing uh, trials, now in the open label uh, extension phases, meaning no one is on placebo eventually, called graduate one and graduate two, where subcutaneously uh, there is over the first uh, th uh, six to nine months uh, a titration towards uh, doses that seem to show a trend towards clinical efficacy in the previous trials, such that everyone will now be on this higher dose. And there'll be a readout uh, later this year to see whether or not this is efficacious and safe. Lecanemab is yet another player with a readout, and this uh, uh, slide is uh, showing the phase two evidence. Uh, I should emphasize that this trend towards uh, a lowering of or slowing down of cognitive decline is only in the uh, group in the phase two that was titrated up to 10 milligrams per kilogram biweekly or twice a month. Like aducanum, during a treatment gap, there was still a maintained lowering of uh, amyloid burden and a continued slowing down of cognitive decline. But again, these are very small numbers, as you can see here, way less than 50 here overall in that high treatment group. So the jury's out on whether or not lecanemab is uh, modifying a disease at this dose, and, but we'll get a readout later this year. And here is that lecanemab trial where uh, folks are given 10 milligrams per kilogram biweekly. I do want to uh, conclude with CMS, or Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, coverage poly dis policy decision uh, that aducanumab would only be covered in the context of a clinical confirmatory trial or through a CMS-approved study using data collection through a registry. Uh, the concept is that Medicare sometimes uh, covers uh, agents uh, only uh, through evidence uh, of development. Uh, and uh, another point is that this may not be applied to all anti-amyloid therapies. If the other uh, uh, monoclonal antibodies that have readouts soon uh, show a clinical benefit, uh, you know, a, a registry may suffice, but they may be uh, uh, covered by Medicare. There may be, uh, uh, in other words, no binding by class uh, by CMS. But we, uh, this is the case with aducanumab. Uh, Persons, uh, again, there are several reasons why uh, uh, persons were against this CMS type of coverage decision, uh, including uh, compromising patient access and worsening present inequities. But uh, in my view, uh, in my humble opinion, uh, these uh, types of uh, uh, new restrictions uh, are the safest approach. And uh, CMS wants to answer these questions, whether the clinical benefit is replicated in the general Medicare population, whether certain subgroups experience different benefits and harms, and how those benefits and harms change over time. This was a great discussion on the recent progress being made with Alzheimer's biomarkers and the exciting developments that are emerging with plasma biomarkers, in particular, as Dr. Goldfarb uh, reviewed uh, so nicely. and. Uh, I hope you have a better understanding of where we're at with monoclonal antibodies, uh, which are uh, anti-amyloid.
and in late stage development with readouts in 2022 and 2023. Uh, before we conclude the program, uh, please make sure to review and download the resources that we mentioned. Feel free to share them with uh, other clinicians and healthcare practitioners who care uh, for patients with uh, mild cognitive impairment and early Alzheimer's disease. And that ends our discussion for today. Uh, thank you again, Dr. Goldfarb, for your insights. Thank you, Dr. Weidman. Um, this has been great discussion. I'm so excited about what's happening in this field. We're really moving from, I hope everyone is picking up on this, from a clinical diagnosis of Alzheimer's to a biologic diagnosis. And so this is going to open up um, developing diagnostic and treatment algorithms and really a much more nuanced understanding of this disease and these diseases. Well said, and thank you all again for participating. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash YFY860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.